This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden has a new pick to lead the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. The White House has nominated Navy Vice Admiral Frank Whitworth, director of that agency, which is in charge of analyzing satellite imagery for the intelligence community. Whitworth is currently serving as the director of intelligence for the joint staff. The Marine Corps has found a solution to a mechanical issue that kept their amphibious combat vehicles out of the water. Defense One reports that those vehicles have been on land since September. That came after a review had found a problem with the quick release mechanism. The service will now return those vehicles to the water after updating the tow rope to a new material. The Defense Department's Office of Inspector General has announced an audit of recruiting organizations. The goal is to assess whether those organizations are screening applicants for behaviors tied to domestic extremism. The audit will begin later this month. The OIG says it will consider suggestions and revisions to the audit process as it proceeds. The concept of integrated deterrence will play a major role in the upcoming national defense strategy. But what does that mean for a cyber strategy? Jacqueline Schneider is a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Jackie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Integrated deterrence is a term that Pentagon leaders are talking about now as a strategy. What does that mean for cyber? Yeah, so for cyber, that is um, exceedingly complicated because cyber is a, a diff- different beast. It's difficult to integrate like you would a bomb or a cruise missile. So instead, um, integration really is going to be about thinking about what the assets are and the special unique capabilities of cyberspace. How can we use the task force model that we use in cyberspace within other domains? How can we use things like deception, sabotage, confusion that are really assets for cyberspace, but can be a little bit complicated in other domains. Is deterrence the right approach, in your opinion? Deterrence is a tricky thing for cyberspace. There's been a lot of focus on cyber deterrence throughout U.S. strategy, really without any, um, with a lot of struggle about whether or not that's effective. I do believe that deterrence can work at a strategic level for cyberspace, deterring cyber attacks on critical infrastructure or deterring cyber attacks against nuclear capabilities. But in general, deterrence is maybe not the right concept when you're thinking about cyber success. And in reality, and there's kind of been some foreshadowing that this might be part of the strategy, um, the real success in cyberspace is in resiliency and creating resilient strategies where the U.S. can persevere despite cyber attacks. You had said that cyber operations are difficult to integrate into the defense planning process. Why is that? Well, the defense planning process is a very rigid process. It's kind of infamous for its rigidity. It's what makes it really good at planning wars, which are inherently unstable. Um, But a lot of the the planning process struggles before conflict, before we're in armed violence, what they call phase zero. So cyberspace um, has trouble sitting on the shelf as a capability that will exist when war actually occurs. And where we've seen a lot of utilities instead in influence, deception, options prior to conflict. And so that's a little bit difficult for the the planning process because it's not kind of what the planning process focuses on. 
You write about the issue of cyber norms, which are the shared understandings of how to um, operate in, in cyberspace. Um, first, give me an example of a cyber norm and what, what's the issue there? Yeah, so a really good example of a cyber norm would be, hey, it's not appropriate to target civilian infrastructure. Russia, you're thinking about invading Ukraine. You don't get to start that conflict by taking out the power for everyone that lives in a, an urban area. So that would be an example of, of a norm. The difficulty with norm propagation is that these things generally take time um, and they work best when people have shared interests and they work best when there's um, a period of time where we understand kind of what works and what doesn't. So chemical weapons, there was a shared norm not to use chemical weapons after World War One, partly because we saw how, one, difficult they are to use effectively, and two, how much destruction they cause. So for cyber, for years, that norm propagation has been difficult because people don't understand what this domain is. But that that is actually slightly changing. And there are um, rules that are evolving, whether they're rules that are written down or rules that are just evolving because of how states are interacting with each other. So what do you recommend the Pentagon do with respect to cyber norms? Yeah, so I think there's a real opportunity here for the de Defense Department to declare what it will not do in cyberspace. Previous strategies have been um, probably strategically ambiguous about what was appropriate and not appropriate in cyberspace. And essentially, they didn't want to tie their own hands. But I think actually the United States believes that it's not, um, it's not okay for states to target civilians whether it's in cyberspace or any other domain. And I think actually the United States probably restrains itself in this regard. So I think the United States has an opportunity here to say in the strategy, hey, we're gonna be more offensive in cyberspace. We're going to attack your cyber capabilities. But that doesn't mean that we're going to attack civilians because we just in general think that's inappropriate. And do our adversaries really, are they motivated to follow those cyber norms? Well, they may not be motivated to follow cyber norms, but they are strategic actors. And I think in general, you can see that states, even like China and Russia, do restrain themselves against the United States when they're worried about conventional punishment. And here's where I think deterrence works. I think the United States has credible deterrence about strategic cyber attacks, attacks against civilians. And I think we can't prove it, but it probably has been partly why we haven't seen more of these attacks from state actors. So I, I think we can restrain our adversaries, but more importantly, we can probably build a consensus from our, uh, our allies that, about what is appropriate and not appropriate. And Jackie, you'd mentioned resilience. So what's the, how, how do you have a strategy then that incorporates both resilience and deterrence simultaneously in an effective way? Yeah, great question. So I really think of deterrence as a line of effort. Previous strategies have kind of centered around deterrence, but I think deterrence is one port, part of a strategy. And that part is very, very strategic. Resilience, on the other hand, is about building networks, people, and operations that can survive even when deterrence fails. This is kind of a complicated and not really a, a fun investment because this is an investment in training. This is an investment in redundant systems. This is an investment in sometimes having processes that are completely analog. Those are all expensive endeavors. But in the end, a more resilient network, a more resilient force actually increases deterrence success because it makes the costs of an adversary taking the attack or the success that an adversary is going to have in the attack 
much less. So resilience, I think, is a, a better overarching strategy, but strategic deterrence is a, a huge line of effort um, to make sure that resilience is a successful strategy. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. Jackie, thank you so much for being on the program. Yeah, thanks so much. Coming next, why less could be more when it comes to the Middle East? Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. military should best reposition itself in the region. We'll be right back. The U.S. military has made hefty investments in the Middle East for the past two decades, but shifts in the Biden administration's priorities toward the Indo-Pacific has caused the U.S. to reassess how to maintain its interests in the region while also scaling back. Becca Wasser is a fellow for the Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security. Becca, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So what are the vital interests that the U.S. still has in the Middle East that require military investments? So for too long, we've had U.S. military strategy not linked to an updated idea of what its interests truly are. It's been a vestige of some of these outdated priorities that are no longer relevant. So, for example, one of the traditional uh, va values and interests that has brought the United States to be in the Middle East militarily has been the protection of energy and oil assets and over time, those have diminished. So thinking a little bit smartly about what the U.S. military footprint needs to do for some of those updated interests that frankly apply across the global commons for U.S. allies and partners to also take their own burden with some of those global priorities is how we're going to shift things. Okay, so spell out those interests. So Counterterrorism is obviously a, a big one. Counterterrorism to protect the U.S. homeland is a huge one. Protection of the U.S. homeland is the top U.S. interest full stop. That applies to the Middle East, where there are some uh, issues related to terrorism and violent extremism and instability. There's also preventing the halt uh, preventing uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. If Iran were to get a nuclear weapon, that would have significant impact on U.S. security interests, but also risks of other countries in the Middle East also seeking nuclear weapons and leading to greater instability. And then the last one is not necessarily protecting oil and energy interests, but rather ensuring freedom of navigation, of navigation, freedom of the commons, and just making sure that you can have the free flow of commerce globally. You talk about a slimmed down ground presence. Mm but still retaining the ability to surge if needed. So let's talk about specifics as to how to do that and how do you determine the right American force structure? Oof, that is so tricky, and that is very much what the Biden administration is really trying to figure out what to do right now. So you've had a very significant U.S. military presence in places like Iraq, uh, more recently Syria, um, and part of this has been because of previous conflicts. So instead, thinking about what the U.S. military ground presence needs to be that is unlinked to older conflicts, such as even the Gulf War, um, and thinking instead about what that presence needs to look like to protect 
the vital interests that we just talked about. That's really where the Biden administration is and where they're trying to identify new ways of doing things. The Biden administration's global posture review was a little bit disappointing to a lot of folks. So now I think there's definitely an effort for uh, folks within the Department of Defense to really be putting their heads together about new ways of doing business in the Middle East and new ways of working with both regional allies and partners, but also global allies and partners in the Middle East. So obviously the U.S. Uh, troops left Afghanistan l last year. Where would U.S. forces be based so that they would still be able to be close enough to potential areas of conflict? So um, right now there are significant U.S. military bases in places like Qatar, al Air Base comes to mind, as well as Al-Dafra Air Base in the UAE. Right now those air bases are being used for some of those over-the-horizon strikes in Afghanistan that the U.S. military can no longer do because they are not on the ground. So those are likely to remain if we're trying to think about what a reimagined U.S. presence in the Middle East looks like. You recommend focusing training on elite counterterrorism forces with Middle Eastern partners and not trying to build national armies. That didn't work in Afghanistan. How would that work? So it's very tricky tricky. Security cooperation is hard. You know, trying to identify how it is you can build up effective fighting forces is no small feat. But instead, focusing on a more narrow set of military partners that you would emphasize instead of trying to reimagine the entire, you know, military structure, it's definitely allows for more pinpointed interest and uh, more ability for U.S. trainers to develop those close relationships that really do lead to an increase in military effectiveness, but it's definitely going to be a long-term endeavor. So what's the best way to counter and deter Iran and their proxies? So I think there's almost two parts. There's, you know, countering Iran and Iran's uh, potential uh, to obtain a nuclear weapon. And then there's also uh, trying to deter Iran from some of its destabilizing activities in the Middle East, which includes its proxy network. And, you know, I think there's making sure that we are working in tandem with diplomacy as well as military to support that is the first is how we're going to deal with that first problem you know negotiations to return to the JCPOA are ongoing, making sure that we don't fall into any patterns of potential uh, escalation in the military domain while those are ongoing, that's probably a good idea of something to pursue. In terms of how it is uh, the United States can help counter some of the proxy activities, it's strengthening those elite counterterrorism forces of partners so they can actually respond to the threats that frankly uh, really occur on their territory and against their interests uh, first and foremost. All right well we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Thank you very much Becca. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Coming next, why thinking small could be a big deal for the military. Still ahead on Government Matters, we take a look at the future of DOD's drone programs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
A large part of the modern warfare conversation centers on high-tech systems like hypersonic missiles. But smaller weapons like low-tech drones could be a serious threat to the U.S. military. Retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula is dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. General, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Mimi. It's really a, a pleasure and a privilege to be here today. So how do small, cheap drones uniquely threaten the U.S. military? Well, Mimi, what I would tell you is that um, they can be effective in uh, disturbing military operations, uh, but frankly, they're not overly concerning um, as we have and we're continuing to come up with means uh, to deal with these uh, threats. Um, and there are really two elements uh, to that. First is acquiring the appropriate level of situational awareness to then be able to implement uh, countermeasures. Um, so um, I'd be happy just to give your audience a, a little bit of an overview of what both of those might entail, um, if you'd like. I do want to hear that. But first, you know, General McKenzie of Central Command has said that the U.S. has lost its advantage in the air because of these, you know, he calls them Costco drones. He seems to think it's more serious. Um, yeah, well, I would disagree with the commander. Um, we haven't lost our advantage in the air at all. As a matter of fact, our number one asymmetric advantage in the United States military is our air power and what we can do with it. So um, while these are, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, elements that can disturb operations, they certainly don't stop our military operations and in fact can be dealt with very effectively. And what about these, you know, small drones that can that are very cheap, they can be armed very cheaply, and then they can fly in under radar and, you know, drop their munitions on, on soldiers. Sure, but um, what size of munition are they dropping? Half a pound? Um, you, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of military operations, um, we're talking about uh, very, very small uh, elements of uh, explosive. And yeah, they can be, like I said, they can disrupt operations, but they're not going to stop operations. And we're talking about the very lowest end of conflict here. We're not talking about, you know, these kinds of, of drones that uh, McKinsey's talking about aren't ones that would have any impact whatsoever uh, if in fact the Russians decide to invade Ukraine or if the Chinese uh, uh, unwisely launched uh, aggression against Taiwan um, uh, or other nations in the area. So from the perspective of a major regional conflict, uh, they're not that significant. And like I said earlier, Look, we can deal with these things. So yeah, go um, ahead and tell us about the capabilities for identifying, defending against them. Sure. I mean, I talked about two critical elements. First is acquiring the appropriate degree of situational awareness. Um, and in that context, what I'm talking about is we have means to detect. Then we need to classify or identify just what kind of small drone we're dealing with. Then there's the issue of locating and tracking and then alerting the forces. These are all important elements that contribute to our situational awareness. And once we gain this degree of situational awareness, we can then impose the appropriate countermeasures. 
In terms of countering these drones, there are really three primary ways to do that. Um, the first one is by physically destroying the drone, um, or you can neutralize it, which is essentially just as effective. And then third, one could actually take over control of the drone itself. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, well, okay, that's great, but how do you go about doing that? Um, without getting into a lot of specifics, in general, um, we, we have means to use radio frequency jammers, uh, global positioning satellite signal spoofers, um, high-powered microwaves, uh, something as fundamental as nets uh, and guns to shoot them down. Um, high-powered lasers uh, are becoming probably the solution of choice because they can operate at the speed of light and they can move and uh, be integrated into the detection system to be able to react quickly. So that's the final piece It's extraordinarily important and that's the command and control enterprise to integrate all of these elements. General, shifting topics a little bit, you, you wrote an op-ed about the U.S. drone program that's used for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, ISR. You say that the capability is still really important. Why? Well, it's extraordinarily important. I mean, let me just go to the area that we recently got out of, the Mideast. I mean, just because we're out of Afghanistan and combat operations in Iraq are over, that doesn't mean that our security interests in the region have sunset. Um, we still need the ability to gather information which can empower allies or allow us to take appropriate action to include airstrikes. So just because U.S. boots on the ground are not in the region doesn't mean that we lack options. It's all about projecting smart power, not undue liability that plays into adversary strengths. And that's specifically what unmanned aerial vehicles allow us to do, to integrate that intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance with force application measures and to be able to do it on the same platform in a matter of seconds. All right, well, General, I appreciate you being on the program. We'll leave it at that. Thanks so much. All right, you have a great day. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest videos. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, 
originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.